the last uh, formal talk of the Sashin, the last paragraph of the Genjo Koan. I had a funny memory of, uh, I think it was about six years ago, which was the last time that I taught this text. And it was, I taught it in a way that could only happen in America. I was teaching uh, the Genjo Koan with, at a retreat that I was co-leading with my husband. So it was an, a Vipassana, an insight meditation style retreat. The text was the Genjo Koan, <laughs> and we were teaching at a uh, Tibetan Buddhist center. <laughs> So I'm going to start by uh, reading this uh, closing <coughs> part of the text, which uh, is so beautiful. Dogen writes, Zen master Bao Che of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent, and there is no place that it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, Bauche replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? Asked the monk again. The master just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. There's more, but we'll start with this. Maybe you get a felt sense, a visceral sense of what's being said or pointed to in the story, even if you don't understand the particulars. And maybe not, so I'll try to do my best to uh, unpack it, some of the language here. The nature of wind is permanent, and there is no place that it does not reach. This is a way of saying the nature of wind is our, our, our Buddha nature, our true nature, our basic goodness. And it, is, it being permanent is a way of saying it is already here. It's inherent. It doesn't come and go. The fact that it reaches everywhere means, you know, may know the koan, the reference to the koan, does a dog have Buddha nature? Right? So it's reaching everywhere means there's no place left out. And there's a, a beautiful backstory about uh, Dogen, who um, was well known for his ability to use language to cut through language. In other words, he was able to use language, which is so often inherently dualistic, to point to something beyond duality. So here's as an example. There is a, um, a famous text which says, all beings without exception have Buddha nature. This doesn't sound like such a big whoopee for us, right? But this was stated at a time in India where there was a very sharp class system. 
So just saying all beings, without exception, have Buddha nature was a big deal. Radical teaching. So listen to what Dogen does. See if you can hear the difference. All <coughs> beings, without exception, have Buddha nature. It's the original. Dogen rewrites it to say, all beings, without exception, are Buddha nature. You feel that? This is his uh, sort of extraordinary skill that you, it, it sort of plays throughout the whole of the Genjo Koan. In some way, without knowing the backstory, it's hard to tell. But he is bringing this quality of intimacy uh, into the text. He's pointing to something that is through words, beyond words. So this is the aspect of uh, Buddha nature reaching everywhere. So if Buddha nature is inherent, it's permanent, it's already here, and it reaches everywhere, not only does it reach everything, but everything is it, then why fan? In other words, why practice? If you already are Buddha, if you already are sitting in Buddha's seat as Buddha, why practice? <laughs> Some of you may have been wondering that at some point over the last few days, I don't know. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? So part of the rest, the other part of the backstory is that this question was Dogen's burning question pretty much his whole life. He wanted to understand for himself because he came out of an initial kind of training that had more of a mm, striving, somewhere to get something to do, tone in it. And when he met a teaching that said, it's already here, you're already it, then he said, great, which you might feel also, like, great. I love that part of the teaching, especially as someone who came in with a lot of effort maybe we might say over effort, a lot of striving, a lot of zeal. And so this teaching of nothing to do, nowhere to go, it's always already here, ah, right? But then why practice? So this was Dogen's question. It sent him from Japan to China. It sent him on his whole lifetime of spiritual quest, trying to understand this question. So in some ways, this story, this interaction that he describes between uh, Baoche and the monk, and in, and in another aspect you could see the whole of the Genjo Koan is his answer to this question. It's his uh, outpouring of understanding that came through a lifetime of study and practice. And what's the answer? So the monk says, why, why do this? And the, uh, I'm sorry, Baoche says, no, the monk says, why practice? <coughs> if the nature of wind is permanent, why practice? And Baoche says, you don't understand, right? If you think that that's the case, you don't understand. So the monk says, well, explain to me, please. And Baoche just keeps fanning himself. And the monk bows deeply. 
So his answer is not words. His answer is activity. And this is so much at the center of Dogen's understanding of our practice, that understanding is one thing. Expression, activity, engagement is another thing entirely. And we are invited into a life of wholehearted engagement, not just understanding. That, that, is the exp that the expression of our understanding comes through, well, fanning. We could say zazen or practice. But there's another aspect of the story that I think easily gets overlooked, which is that the, f the story doesn't end with fanning. The story ends with the monk bowing deeply. So we might think, you know, Bauche understands, and the monk doesn't, and they have this, under, this interaction, and then the monk wakes up. He gets it. But actually, the whole story is the understanding. It's in the interplay of these parts that we see practice realization unfold, and we see the expression of that practice realization, not just as sitting, but as bowing deeply. So the end of our practice, we've talked a lot about how practice realization is not a place that you get and then you're done. There's a beautiful line in uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind that repeats many times. Suzuki Roshi says, so now let's practice together forever. It's that feeling, right? The ongoingness of the practice. It's not gonna stop. But another aspect is that it's not just about understanding, and frankly, it's not just about sitting, as we've been doing on retreat. And as we head back out of retreat into the feeling of the world, beginning to come back in, as it may for some of you, important to remember the deep bow, right? the expression of understanding as gratitude expressed by the monk. So Buddha nature, our true nature, is already here. <laughs> there is nothing you can do to improve it. There is also nothing you can do to harm it. It's yours. It's your gift from the universe. And waking up, realizing the truth in a deep way of that Buddha nature, the natural response from that realization is a deep bow. Thank you, universe. It's a deep bow in which there's no separation. You are the Buddha nature. Right? The universe is you. You are the universe, and you respond from there. And that response is as beautifully d depicted in the story is a deep bow. There's more in the closing paragraph, which I'll get to in a moment, but I... I think that this part of the story uh, sort of leapt off the page for me, this round of reading, uh, because I have been really just swimming in a sea of gratitude being here with all of you. It is... Um, There's a, 
way in which I feel, uh, I'll, I'll say more at the end, but I, I talked about 30, almost 30 years ago, falling in love with Dogen. And uh, my path, as many of our paths, has been a winding one. And so for the past 15 years or so, though uh, I don't think I ever left, lost the heart, the love that I felt for the teaching and the practice, um, I've been uh, traveling other places, you know, engaging in other kinds of practice. And so there's something that has been so deeply satisfying and I feel so grateful for the, um, the invitation, especially to you, Tia, for inviting me here to come back in. And such an extraordinary thing to have, uh, to be able to come back around to something that uh, I, I loved once and still love from a different perspective. <laughs> I'm older. <laughs> it looks different now. Yesterday, I had a kind of gratitude that was, that was lit up. I was just brimming. And today, it feels quite a bit more uh, tender. It's part of the flavor, I think, in the, in the room, the sweetness of being uh, cooking together with all of you. So I say that as a, um, not as a sidebar, but in some way as the most important point. It's my uh, deep bow to all of you for uh, co-creating this beautiful field of practice. And uh, really, I felt uh, so warmly welcomed, invited in to come back and chew and taste and swallow something that I've loved for a long, long time. So Dogen goes on. He says, the actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission is like this, is like the fanning, the practice, and the bow. The actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital, the living path, like Greg talked about last night, that we, we engage we express ourselves in our element. That's how we keep the practice alive, so that it's not a dead practice. It's a living practice, a vital path. Is like this. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. So he's summarizing what he just said. And here we have classic Dogen, again, the closing line. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of this, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. Because of this, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. Can you feel that? When Dogen is really pointing to what's most important, he doesn't use logic. <laughs> he doesn't use philosophy. He doesn't ask you to understand, right? 
the answer in the koan that Bauche says to the monk, he says, although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, understanding is not enough. It's, there's an expression that comes through that's not just about uh, understanding, it's about activity. And that activity comes from some place that's touched very, very deeply in us, which Dogen is pointing to, something that is our true nature, our Buddha nature. And he does this uh, many ways, using language in very uh, beautiful and poignant ways. I want to read um, the closing paragraph from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and invite you to listen for echoes of Dogen's voice, of that, the feeling tone of what Dogen is expressing and pointing to he, in this story, and especially in that last line, uh, in Suzuki Roshi's voice. Suzuki Roshi, Tia told me, is 37 generations. So if you look at a lineage chart, Dogen, <coughs> 37 generations to Suzuki Roshi. And yet, you'll hear, if you listen, though Suzuki Roshi's voice is completely unique. <laughs> There's only one Suzuki Roshi. Still, you'll hear uh, shadows, echoes of Dogen in Suzuki Roshi. Here's what he writes. I don't know how many years later that is. Dogen was 13th century, 1400s, and Suzuki Roshi came to California in 1960. So I don't know how to do that math, but it was a long time. And you can hear that Suzuki Roshi's voice is a more contemporary one. He says, <clears throat> I feel Americans, especially young Americans, have a great opportunity to find out the true way of life for human beings. Isn't that a beautiful way to say what we're up to? We practice to find a true way of life for human beings. You are quite free from material things, and you begin Zen practice with a very pure mind, a beginner's mind. You can understand Buddha's teaching exactly as it was meant. But we must not be attached to America or to Buddhism or even to our practice. We must have beginner's mind, free from possessing anything, a mind that knows everything is in flowing change. Nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. Even under the heavy snow, we see snowdrops and some new growth. In the east, I saw rhubarb already. In Japan, in the spring, we eat cucumbers. Dogen speaks of practice realization, sort of his term. Suzuki Roshi pulls this term through uh, the history of Buddhism of a beginner's mind. 
and uses it, brings it to us in our time, our culture, our place. Both of them speak in a way, a sort of poetic way, to the truth of impermanence, the poignance of our human life. Remember the, the first night when we talked about, Greg described the four first sentences of the Genjo Koan. First three are philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. Here's a way of understanding the teaching, all of which predated Dogen. And then there's that final line, and yet. And yet, in attachment, blossoms fall. In aversion, weeds spread. Already here, you can hear Dogen bringing in something which is, frankly, not philosophy. He's speaking to the beauty and poignance of impermanence. That and yet. That and yet echoes the great Japanese poet Isa. Isa wrote a poem after the death of his daughter. And the poem is short haiku. He wrote, the world of dew is the world of dew. Dew is a symbol of impermanence. The world of dew is the world of dew. And yet, and yet. It's not just about understanding impermanence. It's about taking it in, feeling it in our heart, in our bones, in our lives. And when we feel it deeply, that and yet, that poignance of being human, the tenderness of being who we are comes through. It comes through in Suzuki Roshi with his rhubarb and cucumbers. It comes through in Dogen as he writes this brilliant philosophical text of the Genjo Koan. So I, I wanted to try to find a way to uh, say something similar uh, in my own voice, but I can't do poetry exactly. <laughs> but uh, I thought that I would say a little bit more about um, love. Because for me, that's the word that captures what uh, Dogen is speaking about, <coughs> what Suzuki Roshi is speaking about. It's the unsaid uh, expression that comes through all of this teaching. So the other day, I was talking about joyful mind. And I said that I didn't mean joy as a feeling, like joy as being happy. So I mean that like times 100 for love. So love may be a feeling. I talked about falling in love with Dogen Zenji, right? But I'm pointing to something that is a little bit uh, deeper than that, a different aspect of love, which is not as a feeling, but as a force. Love as the truth of our connectivity, the truth of our deep interconnectedness. What uh, Dr. King described famously as all of us being woven together in a single garment of destiny. Love is the fabric of reality. This, my friends, is not a metaphor. 
It's actually how it is. And as we practice, as we realize, as we make our own lives come alive, as it becomes real in us, we discover the truth of this. Not as an idea, not as a philosophy, but as a way of expressing ourselves in the world. Tia was reminding me of this story about a guy who uh, fell on the tracks in the subway in New York. And he was epileptic. And so his limbs were flailing about. And the train was coming. And someone, a human being, uh, went down onto the tracks and laid his body on top of this man's body to protect him, to keep his body from being harmed by the coming train. And the train went over the two of them, and they both survived. This is love as a powerful force. I read a very tragic story about a killing that happened recently. And most of what we are pulled to when we read those stories is the pain, you know, the misery of the death and dying, the destruction that happens. But what popped out for me as I read the story was the description of the people who were part of this um, horrible act that happened. And what was described was this extraordinary degree of love and courage in which people who were together under assault would, uh, were willing to put their bodies in front of each other to take a bullet for someone else. Extraordinary. This, for me, is helpful to know because it sometimes feels like uh, love is not as strong as hate. But it's not the case. Love is such a powerful force. It is a response that's possible for all of us stronger than survival. And why? Because we know, we know in our hearts and our bones that we are deeply, deeply connected that we are, in fact, all one fabric, all one web. About five years or so after I uh, fell in love with Dogen, I met and fell in love with um, an actual person. <laughs> not an old 13th century uh, Japanese monk and scholar. And um, the person later became my now husband of 20 plus years. And um, that initial falling in love and meeting him was in part a cause for my leaving. Zen Center. And I didn't do it uh, happily. It was a kind of heartbreak, actually, for me. But it was 
the appropriate response at the time. It was what was needed. So uh, about four years ago, <clears throat> my beloved husband uh, had a serious bicycle accident. And I always have to remember, if I, when I tell this story, to tell everyone he's fine. <laughs> he's OK. I've talk, been talking to him every night. And I actually was going to say, he's OK. He's way past OK. He's doing really, really great. Because in part, what the story I want to tell is in parallel to the story of feeling like, for me in some ways, so grateful for getting a second chance to come back in, to re-engage with this, with Dogen and with Zen practice, which I love deeply. Um, this is, the bicycle accident was a pivot point for kind of getting a whole second chance uh, at, within the context of a single marriage. Because so he was in a bicycle accident, um, which landed him in the hospital for many weeks. And while his physical body was banged up, the really difficult part of the accident was that he had a brain injury. So uh, he had a brain bleed. And he had, for about six weeks, uh, almost complete amnesia. <laughs> so this man who I had spent this my life with to that point, in my married life, uh, didn't know who he was or who I was. He had, um, <laughs> they described it to us, that he had recognition but not cognition. So I would walk in the room and he would lighten, brighten. He had recognition, but he didn't know who I was. And this went on for some time. And as was true for me in my time away from Zen practice, um, I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if I would come back or not come back. I only knew you know, one foot in front of the other. And in his recovery from this accident, even though he's OK or beyond OK now, I didn't know that that was going to turn out that way. I didn't know if he would come back. So I have this memory that was arising for me sitting here with all of you in these last days. Uh, on about the 10th day of him being in the hospital. And day 10 was uh, hospital number three. So we moved from the trauma unit to the ICU to the step-down unit. And still, Someone in a step-down unit, for those of you familiar with hospitals, it's pretty busy. So it was plugged into lots of stuff. And I uh, arrived at the hospital in the early morning, um, kind of the way I've been getting up very early in the morning here in New York. It feels a little like uh, an unfortunate kind of retreat. And I would come in in the early morning before things got going in the hospital. and. Uh, spend some time with him. So this one morning, I was there, and it was uh, quiet in the hospital for a hospital. He was still plugged into things that beeped and buzzed and things. And I remember standing by his bedside and looking out the window at this very typical soft gray morning. 
cool fog that was so thick that <coughs> it was creating uh, water on the road, you know, dark pavement. I was listening today as sitting and hearing that distinct sound, you know, as when cars go by on a road that's wet, how it's different than when cars drive by on a road that's dry. It was an ev evocative memory of that morning. So I remember standing and uh, with him, he was asleep, pretty banged up physically still. And um, at the time, I didn't know. Would, would he walk again? Would he talk again? Would I be able to engage him as a, uh, in, a, in a regular kind of conversation? I didn't know if he would be able to feed himself. If he, I didn't know any of it. And the most extraordinary thing for me happened, which is that as I stood there gazing at him, all that I felt was love. And it came pouring through me. And you might think, yeah, well, that's a nice story. But for me, this was a total surprise. Because my idea of myself up to that point was, well, many things. But being a very uh, open-hearted and loving person was not on the list. I was smart. I was clever. I was this. I was that. But there it was. And what I remember feeling so vividly in the midst of all of this love and not knowing was that it didn't matter what happened. That the feeling of that deep connection, which was beyond his recovery or non-recovery, was beyond, I don't know what else, that was, was its own kind of poetry, if you will, that that was its own gift that no one could take that away. That it came through me, and it was the universe showing me, this too is possible. This is love. So I, I tell this story as a way to point to something that's possible for us, and aware that it's so easy to um, imagine, especially for me, sitting in this seat, to have you think, oh, well, that's the way it should be, or that's nice for her, but that's not how it is for me. The uh, comparing mind is, uh, as Suzuki would say, insidious. So that's not the point. The point is that it's that love that's being asked for each of us to discover as we sit, as we engage in the world, and most important, for each of us to express and how you express this one love. Because it's one thing, it's one fabric that we all share, and yet, how each of you express it is completely unique. It's completely your own. This is the invitation in Dogen's teaching, as I hear it, that comes down through Suzuki Roshi. There's a beautiful little poem that draws on the image, images that Greg was speaking about last night about fish and birds. And uh, it's from the um, uh, text on 
meditation practice from Dogen. And he says, realization, neither general nor specific. <laughs> it says, leaping clear of the many and the one. Neither general nor specific. We could as easily say both general and specific. Anyway, realization is effort without desire. Effort, effort is fanning. Effort is bowing. Effort is the universe asking you to find your expression, to let your understanding, your realization become your embodied activity in the world. He says, realization is effort without desire. So without desire means without holding on, without grasping to a particular way, um, without wanting it to all turn out, right? It's being willing to feel that love even when you don't know how it's going to work out for you or for someone you love or for the world. It's walking forward anyway because, because love is so much stronger than hate. And this is an opportunity for us not just to understand that, but to be that, to express that. And again, that doesn't have to look a particular way. Right? So effort without desire, the desire part is about wanting it to fit a particular form. And uh, you know, really the deal is, you are the form. <laughs> and it's going to come through you your way. And there is. What I think that Dogen and Suzuki Roshi are saying, or the feeling in that shot through what they're saying, is that the universe, reality, the world, our tender, aching world, it needs us. It needs each of us. It needs all of us to take our seat to arrive here, to be ourselves. Dogen, at the end of his poem, says, realization is effort without desire. And then he goes on in his poetic way to say, clear water all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. Vast sky, transparent throughout, a bird flies like a bird. This is Dogen's invitation. It's a little stronger than an invitation, like, please. Right? This is Dogen's asking, his request to all of us to be ourselves. You get to be whatever kind of bird or fish you are. And if you're a bird, you're not supposed to be a fish. And if you're a fish, you're not supposed to be a bird. You get to be you. And the universe needs us to be ourselves. It needs us to find our seat, to find our wings, to find our gills, <laughs> and to swim, or to fly, or to sing, or to cry. Whatever that expression is for you that is yours and real and true. If nothing else, 
these teachings from Dogen, really from the Buddha, from Dogen, from Suzuki Roshi, are an invitation into the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of our humanness. Only you can do it. What I mean is nobody else can do your work for you. You have to do your part. And in fact, the world, the world needs all of us to do our part. And <laughs> you can't do it alone. And it's not that you can't do it alone because you're never alone. But you can't do it alone because fundamentally, we're not alone. Fundamentally, we are completely connected. And because we are completely connected, each of you <laughs> is asked to find your unique expression, your voice, your song. I'm going to read this again from Suzuki Roshi. I feel Americans, especially young Americans, have a great opportunity to find out the true way of life for human beings. You are quite free from material things, and you begin Zen practice with a very pure mind, a beginner's mind. You can understand Buddha's teaching exactly as he meant it. But we must not be attached to America or Buddhism or even to our practice. We must have beginner's mind, free from possessing anything. A mind that knows everything is in flowing change. Nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. Even under the heavy snow, we see snowdrops and some new growth. In the east, I saw rhubarb <coughs> already. In Japan, in the spring, we eat cucumbers. Sitting Sashin in Brooklyn, we hear the sounds of the world entering the zendo, entering our minds, our hearts, our bodies. And we find our seats here, each of us and all of us. May all of our practice together be of benefit to all beings in this wide aching world. Thank you so much for your practice. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. 
For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.